Happy Thursday, and welcome to Radio Free Krypton, the only comics radio show broadcast throughout the multiverse and on CJRU 1280 AM in Toronto. I'm Justin Chandler. I'm Jacob Dubay. This is Crisis of Toxic Nerds, the comics edition. A joint documentary produced by RFK and our station's video game show, Built to Play. In their episode, which is also on our feed, hosts Armand and Daniel looked at toxicity in gaming. And in part two, we're going to dig into the unpleasant discourse surrounding many comics today. This co-production is in honor of the CGRU Fund Drive, raising money to support local radio in downtown Toronto. Stay tuned at the end for how you can help support us and other shows at the station. As with politics around the world, much of the toxicity surrounding the comics medium, particularly mainstream comics, is focused on diversity and representation. Who comics are for, who deserves to be in them, and who actually reads comics are all subjected to vicious debate. And while the characters and creators in mainstream comics have become increasingly diverse over the last three decades, recent years have seen an organized campaign of harassment and denunciation aimed at fighting inclusion. While much of the campaign, dubbed Comicsgate, a name inspired by Gamergate, has played out online, the consequences of harassment affect targets in the physical world. So this program isn't about debating who's right here. We believe comics should be for everyone, and hate or harassment should not be tolerated in the scene. Sounds straightforward? Try saying that on Twitter. I remember, like, probably almost a year ago, I posted some tweets about how, like, the new lineup of, like, Marvel's comics were all dudes. Like, it was, like, exclusively dudes. I I was just pointing things out. It wasn't Mm. something that was, you know, a skewed opinion. It was fact. They were all men. That's Stephanie Cook, a Toronto comics writer and editor. Steph's also part of Creator Resource and works in comics media. And I woke up the next day, and I guess somebody from, like, one of those prominent Twitter accounts had, like, started sharing and they made like this YouTube video about it and like within like literally every 30 seconds I had about 600 mentions like in my Twitter and they just like bombarded me with this insane amount of I mean harassment it's harassment. Steph told Justin that online harassment has gotten particularly bad in the last couple years. Online harassment in geek culture is nothing new especially when it's targeted towards women and people of color but it's especially under the spotlight this past month. In August, some big-name comics creators like Canada's Jeff Lemire made headlines for speaking out against the comicsgate trolls and bullies after Marsha Cook, the widow of comics legend Darwin Cook, was targeted by Twitter users, claiming her husband would have supported them. Marsha Cook challenged them, prompting many comics pros to speak out against the trolls, posting, Comics are for everyone tweets. For Steph, a well-intentioned tweet in favor of diversity falls short. It's it's really just not enough to say, you know, I see what's happening and, like, I'm not okay with it. You need right. to be actively making those people go away and know that there's no room in your mentality for what they're putting in the world. So sort of like a thoughts and prayers tweet after a shooting Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like, it's, you know, I mean, it's really nice that after, like, all this time, these people are sticking up for these creators, but, like, the damage has been done. Like, there's some creators that, like, legit got doxxed and, like, have, like, PTSD, like, emotional PTSD from what these people have put them through. And, like, they're scared to go to conventions. They're scared 
to be creators because these people are constantly coming after them and threatening their livelihoods and the thing that they love. And, you know, for somebody to just come in and say, exactly, thoughts and prayers, like, essentially, that doesn't make up for, like, the years now of these people being harassed and this whole thing taking a huge chunk out of their lives and taking away from, like, comics, which is, again, supposed to be something that we all love and enjoy. So it's it's a step forward to kind of have people realizing what's happening and, like, speaking out, but I think there's still, like, a lot more that needs to be done. And you said that you feel like in the last couple of years this has gotten worse? Yeah. I think the problem with, like, talking about the movement in comics right now is <laughs> there's always people who like see what's going on and they're like you know oh people are talking about how much they don't like this movement thing what is this movement they look up that movement and then they're like I don't disagree I don't disagree there's a lot of people that are just either they're they just fundamentally don't see what's wrong with that which is okay whatever that's not great but like there's people who have latched onto it by just kind of trying to talk about it you know, like, it's like we try and raise awareness that this needs to be dealt with and we need to just not make a space for this hatred. But at the same time, there's always those people, it's like two steps forward, one back. Like, all these people are like, oh, I don't want to be a part of this. This is awful. We can't, like, have this in our industry. We don't want this. We want this to be positive and, like, a great community that people can grow and, you know, aspire to be bigger and better things. But, like, at the same time, there's always going to be somebody who just doesn't want that they're like you know what I do want Iron Man to always be Tony Stark I always just want him to be this white dude I don't want him to be someone else I don't want they relate to that and they latch on so like every person that we kind of get to stand up there's also somebody on the other side of that that's gonna agree with the person that has some not so great opinions Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's been crazy to see how that ship has turned and just like where we're going it's Sometimes when you're just like, oh, my God, why do I still do this? Like, (laughs) you're getting, like, all these, like, hate messages and, like, all this, like, really crappy stuff. Somebody once told me that they hoped (laughs) I was, like, set on fire and then stabbed and then mauled by a bear. And I was like, that's a very odd order of things. It's very specific and very odd. But, like, when you're getting all these messages and you're kind of just like, why don't I just, like, go find a new industry? I think about how much has changed and like all the amazing comics that are getting made now and all these opportunities that are being given to marginalized creators that weren't being given to them before and it's really wonderful you know like webtoons line webtoons uh, tapas and you know tumblr even places where you can post web comics have really opened the door to a whole assortment of creators who didn't really have a platform to put their work out there before without having like a serious cash flow to kind of make their comics can do that and they're getting noticed by bigger publishers they're getting deals they're getting paid and it's great I think having those platforms also helps bring in new readers and just kind of like crossing over to all kinds of different mediums and genres and all kinds of things and I think it's incredible what like the last decade has done for this industry like again there's just so much more to do and There's so much negativity and hate out there still. But where does all this zealous hatred come from? Obviously, there have always been hateful people everywhere, whether they read comics and play video games or watch Fox News and play football. But in the case of geek culture, something doesn't add up. 
Fandoms are supposed to be places where social outcasts bond over what they love, not who they are. Isn't it anathema to being a geek when you start excluding people? Benjamin Wu wrote a book around that very question. He's an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Carleton University, and his book is called Getting a Life, The Social Worlds of Geek Culture. He spoke with Jacob and me over Skype from Ottawa. In your book, you described geek culture as going along sort of a, a crossroads where there's a light side and a dark side. And you say that it, it, this isn't really the essential, and maybe it's a simplification, but if you're using that sort of model or that sort of analogy, what do you see as the light side and what's the dark side? So for a long time, we've told stories and uh, shown, represented people on the screen as if the people who belong to and identify with geek culture are all straight white men. Um, and that's never been true, but it's definitely harder to even uh, sustain that myth today. Um, so we see a number of uh, fan communities specifically oriented to uh, people of color, to women, to queer folks, uh, reasserting their place as belonging in geek culture and more and more of the companies that create products for for that subculture are having to reckon with what that means uh, to, to realize that their audience isn't who they have tended to imagine their audience was for some time. And so this push to create a more progressive, inclusive version of geek culture, one that I think uh, personally is truer to a lot of the rhetoric that geeks have often used about geek culture as a haven for uh, misfits and people who feel marginalized and undervalued, um, who don't fit into uh, a mainstream culture that is more focused on looks and success and all of these kinds of um, exterior trappings, but instead a, a subculture that focuses on um, what people uh, think and what they're passionate about, right? So I think what we're seeing is an attempt to try to make geek culture be truer to uh, to that, those ideals. Um, and that's what I see as the, the sort of opportunity that we're having right now. Obviously, if you've looked at the news uh, recently, uh, particularly on the geek media sites, we've seen a pretty strong backlash against those pressures. And um, if we have to use this light side, dark side kind of terminology, uh, then, then that would be, I think, the, the dark side. There's no doubt that for these people um, who just want like geek culture to be the same as it always was, they they still have um, the kind of mediums and they still have some stories for them. Like there are some still like pretty traditional superhero comics and things like that. So why is it that when they encounter some like maybe less commonly known or just like some some pretty fringe comics that might actually introduce some like other ideas of inclusion and include like some different perspectives on identities, how come? They push back on that, even if they still have, like, basically the dragon's horde still of what geek culture is. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really complicated thing. Again, you know, we're not, you're not going to find one answer that fits every single one of uh, of, of the, these cases, right? But um, you know, a couple of things that strikes me is that um, you know we're you know in a lot of these industries. We're dealing with, you know, an attempt to push outside of the existing set of institutions and circuits that things circulate in, right? So, um, you know, Marvel and DC already know how to sell uh, one of those traditional stories to, um, you know, to their, you know, uh, a 30-year-old white male consumer who goes to the comic book shop every Wednesday, right? They know how to reach that person. They know how to interest them. 
um, usually with some success. Um, but what we're seeing here is as they try to broaden their audience, as they try to attract uh, new kinds of, uh, or more people who maybe are not part of that existing subculture of fans and collectors, is they have to expend more promotional resources, right? They have to try harder to make some of these books featuring characters that are um, that represent or reflect different kinds of experiences. They, they have to try harder to get them get them out there and visible and to find their consumers. And I think that one of the things that we've seen is that um, the publishers, for instance, are using you know mainstream media to uh, they're managing to interest mainstream media in the minutia of what's going on in superhero worlds much more often now, right? So uh, because of the in part because of the big movies driven by Marvel Comics and to a lesser extent DC Comics, um, you know, Entertainment Weekly or The Hollywood Reporter is interested in when um, Thor becomes a woman or uh, Riri Williams replaces Tony Stark for, for a little while, right? Um, and so they're able to place stories about these new characters in much more prominent media than, um, than maybe some other kinds of announcements make it in. And so I think for some at least, um, there's a tendency to then see this and over like over imagine how much um, how much of the material is now being uh, shifted towards trying to uh, to attract different kinds of consumers. So I think there's a bit of an overreaction because of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously all of this is also then driven by broader kinds of social and cultural dynamics and conflicts that are happening right now, right? Like it's no surprise that Gamergate and Comicsgate and um, the Star Wars and Ghostbusters and Mad Max things have all happened at this time when there is broadly a kind of political and cultural polarization and a real backlash against um, the last, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years of um, inclusive social progress. As for why it's finally come for comics, um, you know, again, I think that we see some people that are clearly uh, what we would call moral entrepreneurs, uh, people that are sensing an opportunity to advance their own interests by ginning up controversy. Um, so it's clear that there are some people that think that they can make a, um, you know, make a personal brand out of out of Comicsgate and out of uh, pushing back against the SJWs. And you know, as we've seen in a number of uh, similar uh, cases in other fields, right? We've had people launching big fundraisers and, and driving people to Indiegogos and Patreons and so on, uh, particularly to support their agenda of, um, of owning the libs or, or whatever. Um, so that's, that's one piece of it. And I think another thing, though, is just that in general, we're seeing the same kinds of factors play out in comics as are playing out in other entertainment industries, which is to say that the companies that produce these goods are recognizing that people of color have money and women have money and trans people have money. Um, and so uh, why are we leaving that money on the table by not producing the kinds of products that some some of those consumers are telling us they would like to see? Um, and as this general process of, um, of uh, audience response and feedback happens, um, you know, products are changing and it is prompting the same kind of backlash that we've seen in other fields. So I think the question is not why is it happening in comics, is more um, why did we ever imagine that it wouldn't happen in comics? 
When we discuss diversity in comics, it's easy to focus on the harassment and gloss over why inclusion and representation matter. But they do. Sifia Hussein is an Ontario comic creator and PhD candidate. She's conducting research into Muslim superheroes and their perceptions in the communities they're intended to represent. She told us why good, diverse representation is important to storytelling and to the people who consume media. It's unfortunate that like people still need to be explained it mm -hmm. like this, but why is it important that we have good representations of different identities in comics? Yeah, and also to diverse representations. I mean, you can't peg a Muslim. Um, you can't. You can't. Like a Muslim isn't one type of person. I mean, there are different levels of religiosity. I am not a religious person, but I identify with, with Islam through a familial and an ancestral and cultural way. Um, you know, there's so many different actual cultures as well, too, and they practice Islam differently. There are different levels of religiosity. So, you know, one character alone, it as a Muslim, as as any, um, any representation, is actually... Um, is actually kind of detrimental. I think Chimamanda and Ngozi Adichie had even talked about the danger of one story. So multiple types of diverse characters are, is something that we need to see um, rather than just one because we, we run the risk of stereotyping that the particular group that they represent. Safiya's study is focused on the representation of two Muslim superheroes, X-Men's Dust and Miss Marvel. While both are Muslim, the circumstances and execution of their creation couldn't be more different. Well, I think um, specifically, like, I could start with Miss Marvel. Um, she was, her team, um, her editorial team, was comprised of uh, mainly Muslims. The writer, G. Willow Wilson, who is a very good writer, um, she's a Muslim. She's she's an American Muslim convert. And um, Sana Amanat, the editor, is also to a Pakistani-American Muslim. So I think the intent, their intent was, was very pure, and their intent was really to provide a story about a human being and I think the human experience always always connects to everyone um, I think a lot of first generation immigrants I was just talking to one today a comic fan as well too was talking about her fascination with with Miss Marvel because she she could have related to Miss Marvel as a first generation immigrant and then I've had a lot of white males as well too who grew up in Canada and America who love Miss Marvel just because you can relate to all all the insecurities and issues and um, um, moments she went through in puberty as well too so I think the intent for on her part was very um, on her creation was was um, mainly to provide um, a character that could be relatable to um, many groups of people from a human perspective to to Muslim um, young Muslim audiences and also to to first generation audiences as well too I don't know that for a fact but I wouldn't be surprised um, but they gave a very nuanced representation whereas with dust. I don't think there was any real intent other than um, really, how do I put this, really cashing in on the politics of the time and at the same time just, just to be sensationalistic because I felt at the time that whoever whoever signed off on Dust felt that this was some kind of exotic character that could, that, that we could watch and, um, and 
you know, would, would provide a certain level of sensationalism. And that's where they were going. They weren't really interested in actually featuring her culture, which if you're going to do a cultural representation, you might as well. Um, you, you should be doing that, which is how I see, how I think Miles Morales and Riri Williams and all the rest of... Um, of characters of color should be represented, but I think I think it was just to cash in on the sensationalism of the time. I mean, she was an Afghan refugee, and um, the U.S. was embroiled at that time in a war in Afghanistan. So I think it was really just to. I I don't know this for a fact. I just know that she, her representation wasn't paid close attention to. It was just really for sense. It functioned in a sensationalistic way. And what would you say? Uh, something like that, that representation did in terms of like the perception perception of those kinds of characters, especially uh, now, like thinking about this like weird pushback that we're getting in terms of representing those people. Well, it's very interesting um, that you should mention that because I don't know if you follow Sarah Alfagi on on Twitter, but Sarah actually had commented on the latest redesign of Dust, and somebody actually had the the shocking all to well I mean they're entitled to their opinion but they had um, they had the audacity to to contact her and say stop ruining my childhood I like I, you know because she had criticized she had not only criticized the representation the redesign but she had also to as a fan um, um, redrew because she's an illustrator redrew dust in a in a way that resonated with her who is a a Muslim woman who wears the hijab and um I feel like like in terms of what was the result of that was it it just sort of it it reinforced a certain level of privilege that we can take these characters from these particular backgrounds and draw them however we feel we feel fit if even if in a subtle racist way and everybody should be on board with that and everybody should be fine with that so when new characters started coming out that were more nuanced then it was like well that's not a quote-unquote real or authentic representation which is kind of the height of privilege on many levels and I'm not saying that all of um of comics gate audiences are are white I'm not saying that whatsoever I mean there are people as well too who are just tone deaf um that are part of this and I don't I don't know who are fake accounts and who are not, but um, but I think it it led to a certain level of entitlement that um, that you know these characters should be done this way and to actually tell other groups of people that this is what your authentic representation it looks like. I think there's a certain level of privilege there that they're not seeing that they're they're trying to utilize. Yeah, so it seems like there's this weird obsession with uh, just like not changing anything and how. This idea that comics as they were were perfect and that yeah. any sort of improvement is more of a detriment no matter what it is. Right? Yeah. Well, they don't see it as an improvement. That's what they keep saying is that it's not an improvement and that it's it's all politics, which actually isn't that. I mean, it's just that audiences change over time. Times change. You know, politics change. Um, society changes over time. And so um, incorporating certain types of representation, how, how are you losing the quote-unquote essence of mm-hmm. comics I that I I it's it comics has not always stayed the same way yeah. you know it's changed in and in a fluid way so why how how is anyone losing losing any any essence of it it almost feels like they're trying to say we are the authentic real fans and not other groups of people and I I don't know necessarily 
how how um, anybody can take that in a way that's not offensive. Though these online harassers would have you think that their campaign is unique to comic books, its methods and oppressive message seem all too similar to misogynist movements like Gamergate and incels. Yeah, yeah, I I feel like some of well the language of comics gates just in general, I I can see a lot of connections to incel and um, and to the MRA movements as well too where um, where they they portray themselves as um, first of all it's portrayed in such a way that there's not a real audience out there for um, diverse characters um, even let me just put it to you this way even if um, um, audiences for comics are still overwhelmingly white, het, cisgendered men. Um, that doesn't mean to say that all audience all, all audience members don't appreciate a good human story by a character of any background, any any sexual orientation, any um, religious background, any racial background as well too. Um, but I'm not, I, I don't, I really do think just especially when you take comics into um, an international audience into consideration, I don't really think that you can you can say that all comics um, readers are this way or that or that way. I mean, we're all in Toronto right now, and um, and we see all groups of people reading comics and enjoying comics and going to the comic stores as well too, and being at comic conventions. So there's that to be said. Um, and then the next thing too that MRA and incel groups have a tendency to do is they tend to make themselves look like they are quote unquote victims by victims of diversity that by incorporating diversity that they're they're now being discriminated against because um because you know they want to read more characters that look like them and that's not happening even though even though there's plenty of characters that look like them and plenty of characters that lead their lives as well too so it it's just a reframing of arguments that we should really be looking at um the rhetoric of um, reframing all these arguments and painting yourself as victims when you're actually not, we should really be looking at that very closely. As fans and creators stand together against hatred and small-mindedness, it's important to remember that although progress is never certain and there's still a long way to go, things are changing. Toronto rapper More or Less wrote a song about this very sentiment. It started. The change. So on my album, Nerd Love, there is a song called Oh Brilliant. I basically wrote it to give the finger to all the the chauvinists out there that had something weird to say about Doctor Who and the changes that are imminently happening, where Jodie Whittaker has been hired as the lead, and it's the first time that the franchise is having a, a female lead in the role of the Doctor. I was surprised when I mentioned my excitement to, to see folk online just complaining. Like strangers were on my Facebook page taking the opportunity to complain about the tragedy of political correctness going too far and it was just like dude I don't even know you you're not a friend of a friend even like why are you on my like you specifically looked for my post about this to to vent it's this kind of thing that inspired me to write the song oh brilliant which is to address this say so I have the song about regeneration about 
uh, change and change that you can't stop and change for the better and too bad for you and your ignorant ways whoever you are not wanting change to happen and trying to stifle it and complaining about it and trying to stay in charge and keep things the same so you could remain in charge it's like nah I feel that maybe unfortunately there are people out there who have not been marginalized before and they are finding themselves all of a sudden maybe perhaps getting marginalized and any group of people getting marginalized will respond to that because people are always trying to assert themselves you know it's sort of an interesting scenario to see people who are you know let's say part of the status quo now feeling that they're marginalized when in reality they're not really getting marginalized not and they're nowhere near what uh, uh, that other group of people were getting uh, how they were getting marginalized you know before this change happened or was introduced and so the thought i i think is folks like that just kind of need to chill here's benjamin again we can get so focused on the backlash sometimes, and, and we do need to care very deeply about the ways that um, that these practices are, are hurting people and, and, uh, and causing a great deal of distress. Um, but I think that we should remember that a backlash doesn't happen without something positive to kick it off, right? Um, and so, you know, I think that the as long as we keep this uh, this conversation kind of forward forward looking and uh, try to keep our eyes on um, all of the, you know, the great stuff that's happening uh, around more and more uh, voices being brought, uh, brought out in uh, all of these fields. I think that's the, that's the real positive story. Um, and it would be nice if we could can keep remembering that even as we try to, to cope with the, the negative side of the story. And Sophia thinks we should actively challenge that negativity and advocate for change on a larger scale. Well, I think they're already doing um, doing whatever they can at this point. There, are, I, I think the main thing is to keep fighting the good fight and to not it, like if you're a creator of a particular background that has been targeted by Comics Gate, um, to continue to fight the good fight and to continue to to work on what you're working. And um, I think we need to see more, um, more, more pushback from the big publishers and from um, uh, big name comic artists and and writers and editor, um, editors as well to condemning Comics Gate and coming out very openly. And um, I've been happy to see that so far. Um, I think that's that's really more that can be done. Personally, I think um, what has to be done, and this is part of a larger argument is um, I think a lot of these sites that attract fans, um, social media sites that attract fans and therefore attract trolls as well too, um, specific social media companies have to figure out um, how to handle doxing and how to handle um, bullying, cyberbullying online as well too. This brings us to the end of Crisis of Toxic Nerds. Thanks for listening. Built to Play's episode was written, reported, and produced by Arman Akbali and Daniel Rosen. Ours was reported by me and Justin Chandler. It was written by Justin Chandler and myself with audio production by me, Justin, and Mitchell Thompson. 
If you like RFK and the volunteer work we put into it, please consider donating to the CGRU Fund Drive. It keeps our station afloat and allows it to support shows like ours. This year, CGRU hopes to raise $3,300 so it can continue offering weekly radio workshops to Syrian refugees aimed at helping people tell their own stories. To pledge your support, please go to store.cjru.ca. I'm Justin Chandler. And I'm Jacob Dubay. You can find RFK on Twitter at RFKrypton and on Facebook at Radio Free Krypton. Please rate and review the show and consider telling a friend about it. We'll see you in two weeks.